Cooper, Jeff Ponce here, another Baseball America Prospects podcast. We are rolling through our top 10 slash, really, we're talking about the 30s a little bit, but our, our team by team prospect series, our off season series, where we look at what's the state of the farm systems for everyone. And we're doing that today with a team that has produced a ton of talent, uh, has had a whole lot of success over the last decade, the Houston Astros. Jeff, you did our Astros list. Good to see you again. How are you doing, first of all? Doing great. Uh, it's a wonderful time of year. The The handbook's out to press and should be in uh, readers' hands shortly. Um, we're rolling through these top 10 and these these system podcasts. we got the top 30s coming out, top 100s done. This is kind of like the fun period of the offseason for me before spring training starts where we kind of can work on a lot of different sort of passion projects. And I also have... Uh, the fantasy positional rankings, those finished up today with the, the last position, which was starting pitchers. We ranked 200 starting pitchers and uh, we'll be rolling out our dynasty rankings next week. So kind of a culmination of all the offseason work. And now the fun begins. Now the fun begins. And, and kind of with that, yeah, it is true. Like we've that a lot of the hay is in the barn for us. We are we are posting up our top 30s at Baseball America. Maybe by the time you listen to this, we're recording this on Tuesday morning. So if you're listening to this Tuesday afternoon, it's coming. But if you're listening to this on Wednesday, go to baseballamerica.com, check it out. We have 900 scouting reports up on the site for every, 30s for every team. We will add 31s to 40s next week as a as a separate piece, so that we will go even deeper. 1200, you know, we'll we'll, we'll kind of draw a, a line and pencil there you i think jeff you and i might uh, be crazy enough to to want to you know take that to 2400 3000 there are 5000 players playing in the domestic us uh, minor leagues and you got throwing the dsl guys then we could go 6000 you know whatever but but with that we're talking about the astros today and before we dive into these current these, the current farm system i do think it's worth talking a little bit about the 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 thing that if you are not an Astros fan, or even if you are an Astros fan, it's like, okay, what have they done for them? What has the farm system done for them lately? And what has it done big picture? And obviously, big picture, the core of this team is still players who were produced through the Astros farm system. You can go back to Jose Altuve, who is now a, uh, a grizzled vet. You can go to Alex Bregman. You can go to Kyle Tucker. You can kind of go to Jordan Alvarez, who never played a game in any other team's farm system, although he's technically a Dodgers signee who was a fleeced trade of Josh Fields for Jordan Alvarez. But And then we have all the pitchers. Then we have the rotation that was largely produced, again, homegrown largely through international signings. So those are kind of the core of the big league team now, Jeff. But kind of Last couple of years, what have the Astros kind of produced? What have they kind of what what is the farm system given them in recent years? Sure. I, I think it's kind of rinse and repeat. Um, every year over the last handful of years, this has been probably one of the lower regarded farm systems in the game. And each year it seems like they churn out an everyday player and somebody that will be a part of their rotation for the next several years. Last year, that was Hunter Brown on the rotation side who ERA wise didn't have a great season, but had, you know, over 10 K per nine produced a above 50% K 
ground ball rate. Um, I think there's a lot of optimism when you look at a guy like that. He handled some innings, stayed pretty healthy throughout the year, I think made 28 or 29 starts. And you still have, you know, five or six years of control on that guy, which is a decent amount of runway. Um, you know, as you mentioned, four out of the five starters here were homegrown, produced. Um, the top of the the rotation, Justin Verlander was acquired for two top prospects. I think players that we could talk about a little bit later that, you know, had they been in the system, I think the ranking of the system overall would have looked a little bit different as you had uh, a top 100 player in Drew Gilbert and then another guy that's on the periphery of the top 100 um, as well. So, you know, you then take a look at the position side. Yerner Diaz graduates, um, looks like their catcher of the future, something that we had kind of anticipated would happen kind of going into this year. There was some debate, you know, going in a couple of years ago, whether he or Corey Lee was really the catcher of the future. Lee gets moved to the White Sox. Um, Martin Maldonado is now gone. They acquired Victor Caratini as the backup. So it looks like there's some runway with Yaner Diaz. He was one of the um, better offensive uh, young catchers in the game, you know, under 25 in terms of what he can produce. Kind of an interesting um, style of hitting that he's very aggressive, very contact uh, heavy, and does hit for uh, quite a bit of power. So you know, some of the polish, some of those things maybe don't necessarily fit in with the Astro style per se, where a lot of these guys are very patient. And then I think they had another player that kind of proved himself as a potential everyday guy, um, though we didn't necessarily get that playing time. I think heading into 2024, there's a lot of optimism around Chaz McCormick, who put up a really good season last year, just missed a 20 home run, 20 steal season, I believe, by one steal on over 114 games. He's one of the better um, hitters against left-handed pitching in the game. I pulled up the numbers last night on our Outfielders Fantasy podcast, but he hit something like 316, 399, 613 against lefties last year. Um, he's a really interesting player and I think kind of speaks volumes about the Astros player development and their identification process in the draft that there's often a player lurking in their minor league system that doesn't have the pedigree, wasn't pushed up by the exposure funnel, but by just good old development and skills, turns into an above average regular. And we've seen that before. And I think we might see it again. That, that's the thing that McCormick, like, so if you're listening to this and going, okay, you know, like we said, we didn't have the Astros farm system overall ranked particularly high last year, but Brown and Diaz were the top prospects in the system, top hundred type guys. The McCormick development is the one I think that, that kind of is more surprising. Like you, you, you were very modest about it. Like, yes, there was debate about Corey Lee versus Jainer Diaz. If you're reading uh, Jeff's uh, top, you know, Astros rankings last year, there wasn't a lot of debate about that. It was Yiner Diaz clearly above Corey Lee, and we saw that not just for the fact that he's played a lot, and I think in Astros fans' minds, a lot of them are like, "Why didn't he play more?" Um, whereas Corey Lee was shipped off, just not as Yiner Diaz, much more well-rounded player. If McCormick, who let's be honest, it, it did feel like at times last year, much like Yiner Diaz. Dusty Baker, for all his uh, his positive traits, Hall of Fame manager, did seem like there were times last year. It's like McCormick was another guy that he didn't really want to play a whole lot, even though he was having a very productive season. But if they get something out of him, that really does kind of that spring that springs them and springs them in, me into my second question to you, which is is I do feel like though with this Astros team, 
they need Diaz, they need Brown, they need McCormack, McCormick to step up. Partly because when I look at this team right now, you go, we're not at an expiration date, but the core of this team, parts of this team that have been vital to a team that has succeeded year in, year out, are reaching a point where you go, okay, where is this team going to be? How deep is it going to be? Not in 24, but especially if we get to 25 and 26. Jeff, I guess I'd pose it as is, is this team heading to a to a drop-off or is there enough here that as some of these players hit free agency or age out in the case of, uh, at some point, Justin Verlander's going to retire. I don't know. Maybe that's 2032. I, I don't know what, but Jose Altuve is going to get old. As that happens, is there enough here or is that a kind of cause for long-term concern? Yeah, and I think this might be a narrative depending on how the contract negotiations go with either Alex Bregman or Jose Altuve. And then for that matter, the following year, Kyle Tucker really might be a narrative that follows the Astros around this year, whether this is sort of the waning days of that dynasty. Um, you do have you know, two franchise-altering superstars that are – poised to potentially hit free agency in Jose Altuve, as well as Alex Bregman. It wouldn't shock me if the Astros do sign one of those two to a long-term contract. They, of course, do have Jordan Alvarez until, I believe, 2028. The following year, Kyle Tucker has you know this season and then one more arbitration year um, in 2025. So he's got two years left. I would think if you were the Astros, that's the player that you would probably want to invest your resources on and potentially sign for five or six years. Just knowing his production, he's going into the prime of his career. And I think, you know, when you look forward, it's a lot more Jordan Alvarez, Kyle Tucker future than it is Altuve or Bregman. It all depends on, you know, what type of a deal either of those guys take. You know, I can't speak for that. Um, but it is an interesting year, and I think a position that we haven't seen the Astros in in quite a long time because of all these players that they've developed over the years while they've been winning these titles. They haven't had to lose a lot of players. They lost Carlos Correa, but I think in the long run, they replaced him with Jeremy Pena, who's been perfectly fine. Maybe not prime Carlos Correa's equal by any measure, um, but a strong defensive shortstop uh, who can hit a little bit. Um, but it is a big question because those are two very productive players that you could potentially lose Verlander and the rotation. They still have a couple of years left on Framber Valdez. They still have a couple of years left on Jose Urquidy. Um, and then it becomes a question of whether Verlander is back for 2025, where I believe he has a $35 million player option, if I'm not mistaken, um, whether he can turn down that money or not, or does want to finally retire. We'll see. He's kind of on this. Tom Brady of baseball trajectory where he's married to a supermodel and is uh, playing deep into his forties. It seems and still productive and, and still productive and has a shot again, being an Astro doesn't hurt for this, but 256 wins right now. If he does want to extend this a couple more years, 300, something that we keep hearing is, is, is impossible at this point. And again, it's still unlikely with him. We are talking about someone who's in their 40s who won 13 games last year. And the problem is, is 13 wins, 15 wins even. 15 wins this year gets you to, to you know, it, it gets you to 272. 
and you're like, okay, if I do 15 again, that gets me. You're, you're going to have to pile up deep into your Nolan Ryan uh, era, mid-40s, to get to 300. But it's it's at least possible for him, which seems crazy. The, the other question before we dive into the, the, the list. So as you mentioned, this is a team, speaking of, of, of Verlander, that traded two of its top prospects last year at the deadline, Drew Gilbert, Ryan Clifford. So if those guys were in the Astros system still, where would they rank? Roughly. Yeah, I you know, I think um probably two and three in this system. And I think there's some case depending upon who you talk to, whether they prefer Clifford versus Gilbert long term. When we were going around and doing our top 100 sort of feedback where we build our list and then send it out to front offices, I got it internally from the Astros, which I had gotten internally from the Astros prior to the Drew Gilbert trade, that Melton was truly the number one player in the system and they ranked him above Gilbert. We got that from other front offices as well, which is one of the things that sort of pushed Melton onto the top 100 list and ultimately above Drew Gilbert on that list, if I'm not mistaken. So I think it's probably pretty clear based on the feedback that we got that he would probably, Gilbert would probably be two. Uh, and I think that probably Clifford, when you compare him with like Louis Baez, similar players, I think the skill level um, and just the, the floor is a little bit higher with Clifford. Um, so I'd be comfortable putting him at three. But I think when you look at that, you have two true top 100 prospects, a potential third. And then everybody else kind of slots in behind it. And it looks a lot more exciting when, um, you know, your number your number 10 prospect is a player like Zach Cole versus number seven. Um, it's an exciting group. And I think, you know, if, if those guys were there, but without them, it's, you know, a deep system of a lot of 45 sort of grade players, which is fine. Um, but there's not you know, much in the way of a potential standout outside of maybe Melton, maybe Louis Baez, if you really believe in the hit tool. I was going to say, I feel like, and that's kind of the perfect segue here, which is we want to now dive into the list. We're going to talk a little bit about, like you mentioned, Melton now does rank on our top 100 uh, ahead of Gilbert. And that's a perfect way to jump into this. Why, what is it about Melton that stands out above Gilbert? And we'll get into that right after this quick break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back. So what is it about Melton? Okay, let's compare Jacob Melton to Drew Gilbert because these are two outfielders, one of whom was traded, one of whom was not. What is it about Melton that could make him a, uh, you know, that, that has us again, we have them, we have them right together. So let's be clear here. This is not like Jacob Melton is in a different area code prospect wise than Drew Gilbert, but why is it that teams could see, uh, you know, Melton having a little bit of an edge on Gilbert? I think some of it is a ceiling versus floor conversation. I also think it's a tools versus skills conversation where, Melton is very tooled up. It was an unusual path to pro ball, you know, spent some time in JUCO, wasn't heavily recruited out of high school, ends up on campus at Oregon State, took some time to sort of gel and become, you know, what he ultimately was, which was the the Pac-12 player of the year in 2022. Um, I think that there's just more impact in the bat. Some of that is, is based on the swing. Some of that is just simply... Melton's a bigger, stronger, more physical person than Gilbert is. Gilbert, you know, is is um, a hard-nosed player. I think if you've ever seen Gilbert play, he, there's not many flaws in his game. Um, but there are some things with the swing. I know in particular I've had hitting coordinators, particularly with the Astros, sort of bring up how deep he lets the ball travel and if that limits some of the power that they do think is there, particularly to the pull side. Um He's very physical and sort of maxed out. I think that it's just a matter of there's a, a lot of people looking at Melton and thinking this guy might be better in center field. You know, there's more explosiveness. And one quote that came across our desk that I thought was really interesting on Melton was, this is a guy that even his miss hits can leave the ballpark. And when you talk to hitting coordinators and you really dig into some of the better major leaguers and the guys that are impactful, that's something that you consistently hear in terms of even when they don't make their best contact and truly barrel up, they can put the ball out of the ballpark or do damage. And I think that's sort of what the differentiator is between the two. That being said, you know, Jacob Melton is a guy where you can put fives or better grades pretty much across the board. Uh, um, And then I think, you know, you look at somebody like Drew Gilbert and it's, it's sort of the same thing with maybe a little bit more hit tool, a little bit less power, uh, it's not unreasonable to think that that player ultimately ends up the better of the two. Um, but I do think some people, you know, like to gamble on the upside, like to gamble on the impact. And it is a big part of, you know, uh, earning value at the major league level these days. So with Melton, why, like the one thing that kind of, if I have a cause for concern, 
And again, we're trying to look at both the baseball card stats and the analytics that, you know, and, and kind of fuse this all together. But one of the things that does stand out is this, I just expect a 22 year old at Asheville, which is, as we all know, that pretty much if you were going to design an East coast ballpark to, to be conducive for hitters, Asheville's one of them. It was not a bad year there, show power, but a 244 average, a 338 on base. So obviously, if he hits 280, the on base is going to be significantly higher as well. That also drags down the slugging. It's basically a, a 210 ISO, but it's a 453 slugging because he hit 244. Was there anything, is there anything in particular that is a concern when it comes to his ability to hit for average to get on base? Or is that more of something where it's just kind of it? That's the season he had, but it, it does project to be better than that long term. Yeah, I, I think there is certainly some reasonable swing and miss concern here. Um, he didn't strike out a ton at Asheville. It's like 21% strikeout rate. But we did see the approach and some of the strikeouts jump a little bit. It was a 13-game sample in A, so take that with a grain of salt. But I think that's something that you consistently see. Um, it's also interesting. He's a player that puts the ball in the air a lot, you know, above 40%. Um, I know that when we look at and discuss sort of batted ball profiles that the ground ball rate is always a huge concern. There's sort of an area with that ground ball rate at times, uh, because ground balls have a higher batting average on balls in play than fly balls do. Um, they're tougher out sometimes, frankly, right? And at that ability sometimes drives the average. It's almost like Reese Hoskins. Hoskins is a good hitter. He gets on base. He hits for power. He puts the ball in the air so much, like so consistently that there is a lot of maybe hard contact outs that aren't hard outs. They're just fly balls to the warning track that outfielders make. I think some of that is in play with Melton, that he is so fly ball heavy and there is some swing and miss that it's a combination that despite the power, despite the on-base ability, he's probably never going to be a guy who hits 275, 280 without some adjustment to his swing uh, and bat path. So good for power, but at the same time, you know, the fly ball giveth, the fly ball taketh away. Kind of right along those lines, this is a outfield heavy uh, top of the Astros list. Is Luis Baez the highest ceiling player on this list? Yeah, I think when you talk about ability to slug and just from a, a, a purely offensive standpoint, he has the highest ceiling of any hitter in this system. Um, Melton obviously can provide other value on the other side of the ball. He's a good runner, et cetera. You're not going to necessarily get that from Baez. But when you look at this guy against age-appropriate competition across both complex levels of the last two years, he's hit for power. He's gotten on base at a pretty good clip. Um, showed improvement in terms of the strikeout rate this year. And, you know, had a 41-game sample up in, in, in full season ball. Um, didn't set the world on fire, but it was a tough hitting environment. Still showed he could hit for some power. Strikeouts crept up, but weren't outrageous, um, you know, for his experience level. And, and you know, the Carolina League isn't a heavily offensive league at all. We're still an above average line. But this is a guy, when you take a step back and just look at the tools, 
it's borderline plus plus power we have a 65 grade on the power i think if you look at the raw power it's easily a 70 uh just based on age exit velocities the type of stuff he's able to do in game biggest question with him is how much is he going to swing and miss what's the hit tool going to be like um i think from a hitting standpoint you know you can kind of look at uh, another right-handed hitter that I have quite a bit of experience with and a guy like Aurelvis Martinez, where he had special bat-to-ball skills and power. And it's similar with Baez. And it's a question of how does he mature as a hitter? Does he take that step like we saw with Aurelvis this year, where he started to swing a little bit less, started to make better, better decisions? I think from a baseline level, you have some of that with Baez, where he's already kind of making better decisions than Aurelvis did early. Um, but it's sort of a similar player without any really defensive skills. He's, an, he's a corner outfield guy. He has a rocket arm, um, so he can probably stick out there for a long period of time, but sort of fits into that left field masher um, where his arm kind of keeps him in the field for a few years. It'll be interesting to see how he develops, and you know, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the Astros have had a lot of development success with a variety of different player backgrounds, so we'll see what they can do with Louis Baez. That's kind of one of the things that does stand out about this. Now, it's also tr- tough because we're kind of talking about the, the other thing that does stand out here is, is this is a different Astros organization in many ways than the one that we are talking about that, that had that run of success. And yes, I, I know that there are some listeners who are going to also scream, you know, and, and also had some, some controversy, uh, you know, at, at the same time. But there aren't many people left from those days like we have a new gm we have a new not just a new gm but basically a significant portion of a new front office since then we have i'm not saying there are no holdovers but we have a lot of new people you know in in the minor leagues you know on the instruction side and all so is this kind of the in your sense is this same old same old for the astros or are they doing things a little bit differently when it comes to drafting international development any of that like is there is it still the same organization, a similar organization, or is it being done a little bit differently now? Yeah, I think there is still good communication within the organization between instructors, R&D, you know, scouting, some of those things. Um, those mechanisms are still working. There's been a lot of turnover in terms of particular people. Um, some of them, I think, were moves that were probably likely to be made once you know dana brown settled into his role as a gm uh and as a first time gm i think you know kind of feeling out the ropes over the first year or so made a lot of sense for him he started to put his own team into place a lot of that stuff has been more on the front office side there's a lot of longtime instructors here um and i think depending upon who you speak with within the game there were good things that the Astros have been doing over the last couple of years in development side. There's been some other stuff that I think is, uh, you know, a, a little more divisive amongst, um, you know, hitting and, and pitching coordinators, particularly on the hitting side. Uh, and at times I think that people have felt that they've been too heavily um, focused on the data and how certain things play out versus, you know, ultimately um, what's best for each player. That being said, um, I think there is still an infrastructure and the mechanisms are in place. Maybe it's not the same old Astros, um, but I do think 
this isn't a bad player development organization. Um, and they're still very analytically inclined and they still invest on that side. And that's still a major part of the conversation. Um, though things have maybe diversified a little bit in terms of a, a heavier focus on scouting. I think if you go back the last couple of years in the draft, maybe three, four years, there's some things that you might've heard about the Astros scouting department or the lack thereof um, that led to some questionable picks and moves. Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily bad uh, that they've sort of diversified their approach though, depending upon which side of the, uh, of the, the coin you are in terms of schools of thought um, you might debate one way or the other, you know, I, I kind of try to sit in the middle a little bit so I can see the benefits of both sides. Well, Along those lines, who's the guy elsewhere in this 10 that's kind of your pick? Who's the guy that you look at and say, you know, a, a year from now, or probably more importantly, five years from now, we may look back and say, wow, that this is a, a, a guy who's really turned into something. Yeah, I think there's one in particular that I can call. There's a few players that I actually really like um, within this top 10. One being Zach DeZenzo, which... You could have Jack DeZenzo as high as two in the system. That two, three, four, five group um, with Baez, Arigetti, Bryce Matthews, and then Zach DeZenzo was it was a tough rank. Um, you know, DeZenzo was a guy that really popped last year. I think not only a development um, win for them, but a drafting win for them. They took him in the twelfth round in twenty twenty two. You know, somebody who had shown spurts of something impact and the ability to play a few positions in the infield while at Ohio state, he really broke out uh, in the South Atlantic league to start the season, hit 407, 474, 628 over 31 games was then promoted up to double a and hit pretty well there. Um, 257, 339, 286 had 14 home runs, 16 stolen bases. He's a really interesting tooled up player. Um, and we had an article about this uh, from one of our correspondents the other day, speaking a little bit about the improvements that he made from a hit tool perspective, allowing him to get to some of that, you know, plus potentially plus plus raw power that he has. He's really sort of moved his trajectory up. And, and I don't think the expectations for a guy like this coming out of the draft were that he was going to hold his own and double a in his first full professional season whether he ends up at third base long-term or not, I think is a bit of a question. There's a lot of people who think he could be a first base only player might have the bat for that. Um, this could be the next guy that maybe surpasses expectations. I know there's even some other outfits who might be a little bit higher on Desenzo than we are at this point, but uh, do have some hit tool concerns, some positional concerns, um, but he is a really exciting player. And I think if you're an Astros fan, you got to be pretty happy that you plucked this guy in the 12th round. So, this is not a top 10 guy, but if, as we said, we're rolling out the top 30s. The news came out. They had, a, I think, an Astros Fest or they had a, an availability where Forrest Whitley talked about that he is he's a reliever. He understands he's a reliever. I understand that you know he, he still makes our top 30. At this point, there is the era of prospect fatigue, and then you draw a line like, I don't know, two, two states over. And you get to Forrest Whitley because we are talking about a player who ranked at the end of the coming into the 2017 season, 18, Eight 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 
So this is his eighth handbook, which, by yes. the way, Dellen Batansis says hi, because I believe that's one of those few guys out there who's done that, who's been in eight different handbooks. There are players. Juan Soto has had almost a Hall of Fame career so <laughs> far in the span of Forrest Whitley being a handbook prospect. Yes. But I can't. There is a part of me that still says, you know, he's he's he'll be 26 this year. If he could ever stay healthy, is there still something here? Or is it time to kind of give up any hope that, that Forrest Whitley's going to, to be a big leaguer or be productive at all? Yeah, I think so. And unfortunately, timing has really crushed Whitley at times over the last couple of years. From my understanding, he was going to be called up last year and he got injured um, within that week. But but let's be clear. It's something that if you said, oh, Forrest Whitley is injured, that's happened a few times. over. Yeah, yeah, that's not a shock. Um, But the timing was especially bad. So we did not see it. This is a guy that a few years ago during one of their playoff runs, it was possible that he could have been promoted onto the playoff roster and made his debut in the playoffs as a reliever. I think this has been a long time coming. When you see the stuff that Whitley has, he has the ability to be an electric five to six out kind of reliever. Um, His sweeper was one of the best pitches I saw in spring training last year. He's sitting 87 miles an hour with over a foot of sweep sitting 96 to 97 for multiple innings. Um, The stuff is still there. The hop on the fastball was never going to come back, but it's still good enough and has enough power that, you know, paired with that sweeper and then, you know, a high eighties to low nineties cutter, he could be a pretty nasty weapon out of the bullpen for them this year and going forward. So I wouldn't write it off, um, but I think when you rank Forrest Whitley, for me, I kind of had to stick him back in the back end of the 30, simply because one more injury and this is a guy that could be in another organization next year. He's out of options. (laughs) He's out of options and not only that, but at the same time, he is now at the point where justifying that 40-man roster spot is going to become more and more difficult. Like, as you said, like he goes to spring training and there is an injury list plus rehab spent option where maybe he doesn't break camp with the team. But other than that, it's kind of like we're, we're hitting the point where it's he, he's not far away from there's a world where he's in DFA limbo going forward, where it's like, oh, the Astros designate for a sign him and he's claimed by someone else. And then they try to, you know, and that's very possible here without kind of some 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 short-term success. He needs to show I, I guess I'll put you on the spot this way because I know this is another guy that you are intrigued by. But Forrest Whitley, a limber Santa, who do you you know who who do you think has the the better big league career? <laughs> um, you know, I think the I think the the shortest odds are probably Whitley because he's so close. Um, but if you wanted to get creative, I you know and and take a shot, uh, I think a limber Santa is somebody that he's still young enough and has enough ability that 
there are multiple pathways and one of them still might be a starter, which I think that door is now simply closed for Whitley. Um, I don't think it would be the worst gamble. The stuff is really, really loud. Uh, when I saw him in spring last year, he looked more physically strong than he did in the previous spring. Um, it's just a consistency thing with him. If he can find a consistent fastball shape uh, and really get behind it and has that power and holds that velocity for multiple innings, he's got a much better breaking ball than he had the year before. Um, and he's really athletic out there. I do think the smart money is Whitley just simply because he's probably going to be up next year. Um, but there are some scenarios where he never pitches for the Astros in the big leagues. And, you know, Santa can take a step forward next year, just showing more con- command and control because the stuff is really loud. And, and Santa's been a guy that's kind of been over the last two years on and off the back end of the top 30 for me. Um, but had a, you know, after an injury plague 2022, where I really thought he would have a breakout, had a solid showing in, in 2023. And I think we could see uh, better from him going forward. So uh, I want it to be a limber Santa, but the smart money is probably Forrest Whitley. Okay. One more dealer's choice. Who's someone else that, that you, who's an after, who have we not covered that you're like, you know, before we wrap this podcast up, we have to mention X. I think Jake Bloss, um, he was a guy that coming into the handbook process, um, I didn't anticipate Bloss uh, ranking as highly as he did. Um, Ultimately, Bloss ended up as the number 11 prospect in the system. And he was a guy that kind of an interesting background, um, I believe it was, uh, started out um, not at Georgetown, which is ultimately we went to, which is not exactly a baseball hotbed, but he started at uh, Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, which is part of the Patriot League. Um, so you're talking kind of lower level mid-majors here. Uh, transferred to Georgetown before his fourth season and really had a breakout. Um, struck up 96 to 24 walks over 76 innings. He won Big East Pitcher of the Year. Um, you know, signed for a below slot bonus, uh, but still decent money at just under $500,000. But the stuff is really, really good. Um, sitting, you know, three to five, touching 97, kind of a classic Astros guy where there's really good approach angle on the fastball. He's got some hop. Um, he's got two different breaking balls and, you know, more of your your typical upper 70s curveball. And then, you know, a harder uh upper to mid to upper 80s cut slider you know we'll show the change up as well um it's it's a really interesting pitch mix and you know i think this is another guy with plus fastball couple of average breaking balls average or better control long term and has a, a chance to develop into like a solid number four number five starter which is something that we've seen the astros do kind of time and again here so Bloss for me might be the breakout uh, in this system. And there's a, there's a few guys, you know, that I think in, they drafted after round one or two that could turn into to pretty good players. It's again, it's not the system it was 10 years ago, which makes a whole lot of sense considering all that's happened since then, but it is a system that still has some guys that also, and I think this is also important because we expect them to contend again, that as we saw with, with Gilbert and Clifford last year also has the ammunition to go out and make moves, which is something that that the Astros will probably use their farm system for again. Um, it's again, it's a system that is a late stage 
dynasty system. And that's, that's kind of not a shocking development considering how much success the Astros have had at the big league level, how often they've been picking at the end of the, you know, at the end of the first round, how often they didn't pick in the first round, thanks to the penalties for Spygate. Okay. This is not a system where you go, what's happened here. But at the same time, it's also not one where you go, wow, this is just overflowing with talent. Where are they going to find room for all these guys to play? Is that a, a fair summation? Did you just throw a Patriots dig at me by calling it Spygate? I thought it's Spygate. We're talking about a waning of the last days of a dynasty, JJ. I I didn't mean that. I got to be honest. I didn't mean (laughs) that, but it's probably subliminal because, you know, I'm a Steelers (laughs) fan. Jeff is a Patriots fan. I mean, if I did, it was like it would have been really sneaky because, yes, it's obviously it's not Spygate. It is, uh, you know, the trash cans. It's the all that. Dang but, it. <laughs> they, you know, the, but the penalties that came from that obviously did leave a mark in this farm system as well because there was multiple years without top picks and, and all that, international sanctions as well. But kind of, yeah, give your kind of, to wrap this up, Jeff, what is your, you know, short summation of what this farm system is right now? Yeah, I think, you know, there's been some trades. Uh, they certainly dealt with penalties. Uh, I think there's been a lack of continuity at the top over the last handful of years. You've had, you know, three GMs in five or six years. Um, and I think there's been just different messaging coming through uh, from the top down. So that's changed things a little bit. You know, I, I still don't want to write this team off um, as it wouldn't shock. I don't think any of us, if we sit here in a year and say, the defending World Series champion Houston Astros, they could absolutely run this back again. But it's a harder road than it's been before. Um, you know, Seattle, obviously, the last couple of years, obviously, last year wasn't great, but they're they're not any pushover any longer. And you're now sharing a division with the reigning World Series champion in the same state that has a ton of resources and a team that's going to be very good for quite a few years with a strong farm system and a lot of star power at the major league level. So, you know, I think for the Astros, it's a harder road than it's been. Um, It is definitely, I think the best way to describe it is this could be a tipping point sort of season. Uh, Things could change quite a bit in Houston, depending upon who resigns and the success that we see on the field. And there could be some, some moves that are made around the deadline that, you know, ship out breakout players like we saw last year and developing prospects and guys that could contribute in the future to acquire win now pieces. And that's not always a formula for success when you do face a crossroads like this. Well, get used to hearing Jeff and myself because uh, there are, I believe, 14 teams. This is number we have 13 teams left after this pod to do as far as our uh, our team prospect podcast offseason podcast i think jeff and i still have four i have three and he has another one that we haven't covered yet so we're going to keep rolling through these and by the way check out baseballamerica.com again if you're not a subscriber if you want to go way more in depth there's way more to get involved to get interested in this to read full reports on all the players we talked about today, as well as a whole lot more Astros prospect, a whole lot more prospects in general, baseballamerica.com. We thank you to all of our subscribers. For Jeff, 
I'm JJ. So long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.